generation has no future, and I refuse to believe that I have been given permission to live, and I am free. I realize this may be a shock, but God has a purpose for my life is actually a lie, and I believe money and popularity are priorities. In my lifetime, I will tell the people closest to me, I have my priorities straight, and I must hold on to my pride. I surrender the idea that my actions will have an everlasting impact. In the future, lukewarm beliefs will be the norm. No longer can it be said that my peers and I care about our faith. It will be evident that my generation is apathetic and lethargic. It is foolish to presume that there is hope. But what if we change that? What if we shatter those expectations? What if we flip the script? There is hope. It is foolish to presume that my generation is apathetic and lethargic. It will be evident that my peers and I care about our faith. No longer can it be said that lukewarm beliefs will be the norm. In the future, my actions will have an everlasting impact. I surrender the idea that I must hold on to my pride. I have my priorities straight. And in my lifetime, I will tell the people closest to me, money and popularity are priorities. It's actually a lie. And I believe God has a purpose for my life. I realize this may be a shock, but I have been given permission to live. And I am free. And I refuse to believe that my generation has no future. Alright, if you have your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 2, we're there all weekend, 1 Peter chapter 2, kill some time while you flip there. Man, it is my favorite, my favorite thing to do of this whole weekend is to get here and open the Bible with you guys and talk about it. It is just such a cool privilege and opportunity every time I get to do this. I'm so grateful for it. Like we said last night, the most authoritative and powerful time of this weekend is what we're about to do. We're going to open the Bible, and we're going to hear God's words to us. And everything that I say afterwards, those are just my words. And, like, I've studied really hard, and I've read a lot of books because I want them to be good words. I want them to be accurate words. I want them to be powerful and impactful words. But my words will have nothing compared to these words. So if you will get this word into your heart and into your life, then, man, what kind of transformation can God do through you? With that in mind, would you stand with me as we read from God's word? Again, we do this because we want to remind ourselves, this isn't just Adam talking. This is the word of God speaking to us with power and with authority to tell us what to do. And I'd like everyone to stand up for this, including you two. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, and you can follow along in your Bibles if you'd like. So, put away all malice and all deceit and slander and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, 
You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into the marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jesus, for the opportunity that we have to hear from your word. Lord, I pray that your word would come in power and would challenge us, would change us, would work in our lives to a powerful end. We are so grateful for this opportunity. We love you. We thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like to begin our time together this uh, morning by engaging in some existentialism. If you know me, this is one of just my favorite things to do. I love to just take a step back and just contemplate the mystery of life and existence. Like, what does it mean to be a human, a, a walking sack of meat, walking on a rock that's hurling through space at thousands of miles an hour, uh, around a sun that's, again, hurtling throughout the universe at thousands of miles an hour? Like, if you just take a step back, it's like, whoa, what does it mean to be me? So I love, I love this question. When I'm speed friending, I like to ask this question when I want to go a little bit deep. What does it mean to be you? What does it mean to be Adam? What even is Adam? It's a name. But is Adam more than a name? If you take away the name Adam, who am I? If you take away my job, what am I? If you take away my friendships, my relationships, What's left beneath all of that? Take away all my achievements, all the things that I'm really proud of and work very hard on. Take away all of my feelings. What, what's there? If you strip away just some of the, the thoughts, emotions that I have, who am I apart from those things? What does it mean to be you? Anyone a little overwhelmed yet? I love that kind of existentialism. It's so fun. It's so fun, just like, whoa, what the heck? What is life? I love this stuff. I love this stuff. What does your life mean? Because you have a lot of different experiences. What does it mean to be you apart from your experiences? You have a lot of different emotions. What does it mean to be you apart from all the things that you feel? You have a lot of different friends and relationships, and those are good things. But what does it mean, you as an individual, apart from all of those different things? Now that, now that we've asked those questions, we've felt the weight of just like, whoa, what is existence? Let's let scripture answer that for us. One of my favorite scriptures, it's not going to be on the screen, uh, but it is our memory verse for this week at MCA, Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens, 
He does all that he, is that this week or is that last week? I can't remember. That's this week. Okay. Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. I love another verse in Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5. The Lord speaks to the prophet Jeremiah and he says, before you were in your mother's womb, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I chose you and I appointed you a prophet to the nations. See, listen, before you were born, before you were even like thought of as, as like, like my, before you had twinkle in your mama's and your dad's eyes, before any of that happened, God saw you and God had a purpose for you. God had something that he wanted you to do and accomplish. This is this great truth that I, that I love from Jeremiah 1.5, that, that God didn't just see him and know him, but he appointed him to do something. You could say that Jeremiah, ready for this? He was made for this moment. See, you were foreseen by God. You were created by him, and he knew who you'd become. He knew what you would do. Nothing in your life is accidental. The fact that you are where you are today, the fact that you're here this weekend is not an accident. The fact that you live in Moreno Valley, California is not a mistake. It's not simply a fluke of nature. See, God saw you before you were born. He could have had you been born any place in the world. You could have been born in Cameroon, but you were born in Moreno Valley. Why is that? More than that, God knows the family that you were born into, and he selected that. Why did I have my parents, and Amy had her parents? Like, why didn't that get flipped around? Well, because God saw Amy, and he knew what he had for her to do. God saw me, he knew what I had for myself to do. And so it's not a mistake that I'm in the family that I'm in. It's not a mistake that you're in the family that you're in. It's not a mistake that you go to the school that you go to. Even in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic, it's not a mistake that these things happen because our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Your time in history, you could have been born at any time. Why weren't you born five years earlier? You ever think about that sometimes? Like I'm like, man, if I was born just four years later in life, how much different would my life have been? It's wild. But God saw the time, God saw the place, God saw the person, God saw the family. He said, this is the spot that I want Alex to be born into. This is the place that I want Jocelyn to be born into. This is the day. This is the time. This is the school that I want Zienna to attend. God saw all that. I'm sorry if I didn't say your name. Don't be offended. But I only have so much time. I want to actually talk about the Bible. This is what we mean when we say made for this moment. That's what this is all about. That God has a purpose for you to fulfill. That he saw you, he knew you, and he said, hey, there's something that I want to do, and it's so much bigger than just circumstance and, and happenstance. Your place in history is not accidental. God placed you precisely where you would have the most impact for his kingdom. And this is exactly what Peter is talking about in verse 9. He says that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Despite the challenges that these early believers are facing, they have a role to play in their world. This passage is, is the hinge. It's the hinge of the whole letter. Peter has written about what God is doing, how important Jesus is, how, how important it is to have a life built on Jesus, and he's about to move into a whole kind of unpacking of what does it look like to have a life built on Jesus? How does that affect your 
relationships? How does that affect the way you work? How does that affect the way you live and act as a human being? And in order to tie, build your life on Jesus, and live for Jesus, he needs a transition statement. And this transition statement is maybe the most important statement in the whole letter, because it's right here. If you're going to do all that God has called you to do, you need to know this. What you believe about who you are and what you believe about what you are called to do will shape the way that you live in the world. I'm going to say that one more time. What you believe about who you are and what you are called to do will shape the way that you live in the world. So we've already laid a, a bit of the foundation for this, pun intended. Uh, we already asked, where's your life built? What do you believe? What, what, what are these things that your life is built on and, and resting upon it and sitting upon? Because what you believe about who you are and what you're called to do will change the way that you live in the world. So we need to get these questions right because they form the foundation of who we are as individuals. And, and so now we can begin to tackle the more important, uh, the, the surface issues of identity formation. Who are you and what are you called to do? So when, when I say that, when I say who are you, when I say who are you, I, I don't mean the sense that in the sense of personality or career. Because when we think like who are you, well, I can answer that. My name's Adam. I'm ENFJ on the Myers-Briggs test. My Enneagram number is, is three wing two. And on the DISC personality assessment, I'm a D-I-C-S. But that's not who I am. That's my personality. Those are some things about me. I like the color blue. I root for the Seahawks. I play instruments. I read a lot. But those aren't me. Those are just things that I do. Those are personality traits. But who am I underneath all of that? In the same way, we talk about a calling a lot of times. What's your calling? Have you found your calling? Do you know what God's called you to do? And we equate calling with career. We think, what God has called me to do is to be a plumber, or to be a musician, or to be a pastor, or to be a teacher, or a doctor, or a firefighter, or fill in the blank with whatever your chosen career is. Maybe you don't even know what your chosen career is. That's okay. You don't have to choose your career at 15, actually. You can take some weight off your shoulders. You don't have to choose your career at 18, actually. It's okay to not know what you want to do with the rest of your life. But much more important than your career is your calling. The, the word we use in the church world for this is the word vocation. And I think it's worth knowing this word, vocation. And the reason I say vocation instead of calling they mean about the same thing. They're synonyms. But the reason I say vocation instead of calling is because the word calling has gotten really over-spiritualized. And when I ask you, what's your calling? It's like, oh, this really deep question. God, what is my calling? Where do I need to go? And it can just be overwhelming. It's like, what are you called to do? It freaks people out. I know it freaked me out for a really long time. It's like, whoa, this is this big deal. I don't want to get it wrong. I don't want to mess it up because what if I miss God's call on my life? Then I'm screwed. So... I like to use this word vocation instead because it's way less over-spiritual and it's way more straightforward. There's a purpose that God has for your life regardless of what you do, regardless of where you go, regardless of who you're in a relationship, regardless, strip all those things away, and there's something that God has for you to do. And it is the same for everyone in this room. We all have the same vocation from God. So you are not defined, I want you to hear this, you are not defined by your thoughts, you are not defined by your actions, you are not defined by the relationships you're in, you are not defined by your feelings, you are defined by your identity 
who God says you are, and you are defined by your vocation, what God has for you to do. So let's talk about your identity for a few minutes. You are chosen. You are chosen. And this is the bedrock of identity for Peter. This is when he, when he wants to talk about identity, the first thing he wants to say is, hey, you are a chosen race. God has chosen you. I need you to hear this. God saw you before the foundation of the world. Before planets and galaxies existed, God saw you. And if you're a believer, God chose you. The Bible talks about God choosing people. And, and, and the word that it uses is the same word for loving people. When it says that you were known before the foundation of the world, it also means you were loved before the foundation of the world. Before you did anything right or anything wrong. Before you ever sinned, before you ever like made yourself super holy and great, you were loved by God. You were chosen by Him. He saw every mistake that you would ever make. He saw every way that you would disappoint Him. He'd saw, he saw every way that you'd ever screw it up, and He still chose you. Listen, He still chooses you. I like to say this a lot. Being fully known is how we can be fully loved. A lot of times we feel like, we feel like, man, no one knows me. No one really knows the real me. And, and so it's hard for me to feel loved because it's like, man, the person that you love, that's not really who I am. That's just the mask that I put on. That's just the front that I put up. That's just the personality that I generate. And so, man, no one's really going to, because if they'd really see who I am, they, wouldn't, they don't actually love me. They just love the fake me. So we walk around with this mask on. We walk around not being fully known. And so we're never fully loved. We never feel fully loved. Because everywhere we go, we got this fake veneer. And it's all good, happy, smiling Adam. And life is good. I'm blessed and highly favored. God's so great. But then I go home. And I get in my car. And I get in my bedroom. I shut the door so my parents can't get in. And it's not there at all. It feels like, man, no one loves me because no one knows me. But listen to me. God fully knows you. And so as a result, God can fully love you. And only God can do this because only God fully knows you. Like, you can have the greatest friendship and relationship and really take that mask off and be really close, but they can't read your mind, they can't read your heart, they can't read your intentions, but God can. He fully knows you, and you are a chosen race. Like, if I could beat you over the head with this, I would. Like, this is so foundational. This is so important to understanding who you are as a person. That God has chosen you with all of your flaws, with all of your mistakes, with all of your imperfections. I feel like I just repeat this over and over and over because we need to hear it over and over and over. Because I can hear this message today and tomorrow afternoon have already felt like, man, I screwed up and God doesn't love me anymore. But that's not true because you are a chosen race. God loves you fully because he knows you fully. So do you feel unwanted? Do you feel unloved? Do you feel abandoned? Do you feel left out? You need to hear this. You are chosen. God wants you and God shows you. You are part of our community. This is what it means to be a trademark. 
You matter. You belong. God chose you and he put you together with us. And so we choose you. We choose each other. There's an application to this. It doesn't just stop at what God did. It goes on to what we do. We choose each other. We choose to be in relationship with each other. We choose to have authentic relationships around Jesus because this is who we need to be. God shows us despite all of our flaws, and so we're going to choose each other despite all the flaws and inadequacies that we see. But you're just chosen. You're chosen for something. You're chosen with a purpose. You are different by design. That's what Peter says. He says, you are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. We're going to talk about that word, uh, royal priesthood, a little bit later. So I want to focus on the idea of holy nation. You are a holy nation. This word holiness has the idea of being set apart, being unique. The fun, fun word is peculiar. You are a little peculiar, all of you, because you follow Jesus. You are a little bit set apart. You are a little bit different. Once you're chosen by God, it begins to change some things about the way you live your life. Because I'm not living for myself anymore. I'm living for someone who chose me. I'm part of the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of this world. And so when I follow Jesus, my life's going to begin to look a little bit different. He's going to begin to transform my desires and my actions. We talked about this last night as we come to Jesus. He, he helps us to love him more and to, to, to love sin less. He, he changes me. And so I become this peculiar person. I become this holy person. And so when we come together as, as a church body, as trademark, as MCA, we are a peculiar people. We are a different people. We look different than the rest of the world because we have some different stuff going on. God has done some different stuff. Your allegiance belongs to King Jesus. Your highest priority is advancing his kingdom and his priorities, not your own. You don't identify yourself with a political party or a politician or a social movement or a cultural influencer because we're focused on King Jesus. He is our hope. He's our focus. We're part of a new kingdom. We are different by design. You are also in Christ. You are in Christ. You're a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You belong to Jesus. You are in Jesus. This is this great doctrine of the union with Christ. You belong to God. And this is how the Bible talks about salvation happening. That you are, in some spiritual sense, united with Jesus. And so, if you're a believer, and this just blows my mind, I love to, to think about this a little bit, this blows my mind, I am sitting, I'm standing on a stage right here, but I'm also in Christ. And so in some sense, I am with Jesus in heaven, like at the face of God the Father, at the right hand of God the Father, because I'm in Jesus, I'm united to him. And that is my hope. My hope isn't how good I can behave, my hope isn't how well I can perform. My hope isn't how good I can preach this sermon and how much I can impact you. Although, like, I want to do that. I, I want the Lord to do some stuff. But that's, that's not my hope. My hope is I'm in Christ. So whatever happens here is here. But I'm in Christ. And that's, that's where my identity lies. That's, that's where I'm tied up in. I am in Christ. When you come to Christ, you can be spiritually united to him. And so what can be said of the character and the goodness of Christ can be said of you. When we talk about Jesus being holy, when we talk about Jesus being pure, 
When we talk about Jesus being worthy and awesome, listen to me, that has become your identity too. You, you haven't become a God, but the holiness of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus, the goodness of Jesus, the power of Jesus, that can be said about you as well because you are in Christ. And that is how and that is why God forgives your sin. Because when he looks at you, he doesn't see sinful, broken, messed up Adam. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He sees his son. And he loves you because you are in his son. He shows you to be in his son. When God looks at you, he doesn't see your brokenness. He doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your guilt. He doesn't see your shame. He doesn't see all the mistakes. He doesn't see the things that you did last night. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. And that covers all of it. All of it. He sees you renewed after the image of God. And all this identity is only available through Jesus. So if you are not in Christ, this is my invitation to you. Get in Christ. Give your allegiance to King Jesus. Put your faith in him. Put your hope in him. Put your trust in him. Believe he is who he says he is because that's how this is accomplished. That's how this happens. It's by being in Christ. And so you don't need to live up to this identity. This is your identity. This isn't something that God says, here's who you are, now prove it. He says, no, here's who you are. And so I'm going to help you live the way that you are. You will not find this apart from Jesus. So that's your identity. That's your identity. You are chosen. You are different. You are in Christ. Now let's talk about your, your vocation. Second part of this verse. So you're chosen with a purpose, right? You're a chosen people. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for his own possession. That is the purpose statement. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now, now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You have a purpose. This is the purpose. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This is your purpose. This is your vocation. This is your calling. So for anyone who came last night praying, God, help me find my calling, this is it right here. Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. What does that mean? Glad you asked. That's the next point in my message. Your purpose comes out of your identity. It's that who you are shapes how you live. So you, here's what this means. You are a walking billboard for the kingdom of God. You are a walking pop-up advertisement. When you walk into the room, you are a pop-up advertisement for King Jesus. The content of your advertisement is either really great or it's one of those really cheesy ads. And that's going to depend on your spiritual maturity and how, how much you, you grow into that. But wherever you go, you are a walking advertisement for Jesus Christ. So your vocation, your job, make God look huge. God is huge. Show that God is huge. Show that God is huge. Declare his glory. Proclaim his excellencies. Tell the story. Man, you have no idea what I was living in before I came to Jesus. You have no idea how hopeless and depressed I felt before Jesus changed some things in my life. 
I felt I had no purpose in life. I was just wandering aimlessly. But then I found Jesus and something changed. Make God look huge. Advance the rule of the kingdom of God. When you walk, when you live, live under his authority, King Jesus. Bring others into his kingdom. You are this walking billboard. Listen to me, people are watching you. May not feel like it, but people are watching you. People know you're a Christian. Your parents know that you came to this camp this weekend. Your friends know that uh, you're busy on Wednesday nights because you got something going on. What do they see when they're watching you? Do they see Jesus? Do they see a good advertisement for God's kingdom? That's a challenging question. Talk more about that later. Okay, so that's my vocation, but, but what should I do with my life? What should I do with my life? And this isn't, this is, just, this is just good preaching. Don't follow your passion, follow your purpose. Don't follow your passion, follow your purpose. So you say, okay, my vocation is to proclaim the excellencies of God. How do I do that? What, what, what career should I pick? Should I be a plumber? Should I be a banker? Should I be a teacher? Should I be a pastor? Don't follow your passion. Follow your purpose. Your purpose is to show off the glory of God. Take your passions and put them on your purpose. So God has given you, right? We talked about this. God has made you the way you are for a purpose. He's, it's not an accident that you are where you are. It's not an accident that you have the passions that you have. It's not an accident that you have the dreams that you have. It's not a mistake that you have the goals that you have. Those are things that God gave you. So take all of those passions and don't live your life focusing on those passions and trying to fulfill those passions. Take those passions and put them on top of your purpose. Because your purpose is steady. Your purpose is this strong foundation. Your purpose is Christ the solid rock. You put all your passion on that. You put all your dreams on that. You put all your desires on that. Man. See how God can use those. See where God takes that. See how God uses your passion for education to advance his kingdom in the world. See how God uses your passion for the culinary arts. You're like, man, how can I be passionate about cooking and like proclaim the excellences of Jesus? Man, God made good food. It's good to make good things. Like there's, there's a whole world of just, we need Christian art. Not like crappy derivative, I'm not gonna name any radio stations, but we don't need, we don't need just Christianized junk. But we need good art that's powerful and compelling and glorifies Jesus. You don't got to paint pictures of Jesus and the Virgin Mary. But as you paint, you give God credit for your gifts. You show off the beauty of God's good creation. The Bible says that creation declares the glories of God. And so you show off the beauty of creation in your landscape artistry. You show off the beauty of your creation as you take a cow and make it taste like something way better and way less smelly. That'll preach. Passionate about athletics? Give God the glory for your successes. Live a holy life on whatever platform you're given. God, we need powerful Christian sports influencers, people with a platform. Guys like, I love Russell Wilson. I'm a big Seahawks fan, so of course I do. But like, that man's Twitter feed is a Bible verse every day. You hear him give a press conference. He's going to talk about how much God has blessed him, how much God has given him. He's going to be in interviews with all sorts of pastors. We need more people like that. So, yeah, use those athletic passions, but put them on your purpose and use them to follow Jesus and make Jesus look big and great. Follow the teaching. Why don't you encourage the natural gifts and the talents of other people? 
Why don't you be a shoulder to cry on? Gosh, we need more good, godly teachers who aren't concerned about pushing their own agenda, but are concerned about pushing the agenda of the kingdom of God. Yeah, I said it. Passionate about public service? You just love to do things for other people? You got that strong two-wing three going on? I feel you. I feel you. Advance the rule of King Jesus in whatever ways are made available to you. Run for office. And then follow Jesus as you do it. Enact great legislation. Advance justice. Advance righteousness. See that thing happen. And keep your mind on Jesus and don't get dirtied up by money and success. Man, I'm going to throw this in there. You called to pastoring? We need more pastors. Why not you? Why can't you be called to ministry? Why can't you be called to, to do this? I'm not saying you have to, but why not you? Become a deep-rooted person that can direct others in the deep things of life. Why not you? So you've got an identity. You've got a purpose. You also have a destiny. You have a destiny. Verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Here's your destiny. Destiny is kind of a weird word. Don't get weird with it. We think of destiny like fate, of like you must do X, Y, and Z. Your whole life is mapped out. And like every choice you make is controlled and determined. I don't necessarily believe in that. I don't think that's what Peter's talking about here. Basically, this is your final hope. This is whatever happens in life, whatever mistakes you make, whatever successes you have, this is where you're going to end up. This is the end goal of people who follow Jesus. This is the end result. Basically, Peter's doing this big zoom-out shot, and he's looking at the whole span of lifetime of anyone who follows Jesus. He does this. He does this not just by making a point, but he does it by using some poetry. Peter loves to make references to great literature. It's fun, because I love to talk about great literature. So if you turn in your Bible to Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. Some of you guys are like, yes, Hosea. Hosea, I tell you, is one of the most beautiful books in the Bible. So rich. Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, and this is what Peter references. It's a story. Hosea is an ancient prophet in Israel, and the Lord tells him to do some crazy things, and he says, your life is going to be a metaphor for my message to the nation of Israel. So here's what it says, and this is just the Bible, y'all. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take, your, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. You're like, did he just say what I thought he said? Yeah. He said, Hosea, go marry a prostitute. She's going to cheat on you. She's going to have children from other men. This is what I want you to do. Now, listen to me. The Lord is not telling every person to do that. So you can't take this Bible verse and say, well, it's okay for me to go to a prostitute because the Bible says so. This is a specific verse for a specific person, for a specific time. We're on the same page. So he went, he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, 
I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. The Lord said to him, call her name, no mercy. I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned, no mercy. Gosh, aren't you glad your name isn't no mercy? That'd been a bad name. After she'd weaned, no mercy, she conceived and bore another son. And again, these aren't Hosea's sons. These are, she's getting hired out. These are the kids that result. Call him, gosh, call his name not my people. This, this word in Hebrew is literally not my son. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. This is God's message. You're like, man, I thought this was going to be hopeful. That does not feel hopeful. But before we can understand the, the beauty of the good news, we've got to feel a little bit of the weight of the bad news. So this story of Hosea's life is a metaphor for the nation of Israel. That instead of going to God with all of their comfort and all of their hope, instead of trusting the Lord, they put their trust into false gods, into literal idols, golden statues. Says you've you've done all this, and it's just like you are a prostitute. You were in a covenant relationship with me. We were married to each other. We were supposed to love each other and care for each other. And you abandoned me and you went off to serve other gods. You can feel the pain of God in this passage. And if you continue to read, we won't read the whole thing, but you continue to read chapter one and two, you feel the pain that God feels as his people reject him and abandon him. So they're going to reap destruction. They've sown the wind. They'll reap the whirlwind. They've, they're no longer going to be protected from the destruction that sin brings. Sin brings devastation and destruction. Sin ruins lives, ruins the world. You've seen that. You've seen sin cause some problems, right? You know. But in that destruction, God so often prevents us and protects us from the results of that destruction. He says, I'm moving the hand of protection, and I'm going to let sin destroy you. I'm going to let sin consume you. I'm going to let sin ruin you, because you're choosing it. This is what you're going to walk in, and so you're going to feel the consequence. You're going to feel the weight. You're going to feel the result of sin. They've lost their identity as a people, and we are no better than Israel. We're not somehow more holy just because we live here 2,000 years later and have flushing toilets and electric lights. We're still just as bad as they are. We are in a covenant relationship with God. He makes this relationship with us knowing that we are sinful people, unable to uphold our end of the bargain. We come to Jesus, we declare our allegiance to him as our king. We say, I'm gonna follow you, I'm gonna live for you. I believe you are who you say you are. I'm giving my life to you. And yet we so often fail. We so often become just like Israel. And what we're doing is we're prostituting ourselves to other gods. We are prostituting ourselves to fame. We are prostituting ourselves to success. We are prostituting ourselves to money. We are prostituting ourselves to our own sinful desires and passions. We are prostituting ourselves to our relationships and our friends. We are prostituting. Should I stop? Should I? It's heavy. So you can imagine 
have to imagine you feel it. But listen. Listen to verse 10. This is how God responds. Would you stand with me as we receive the word of the Lord? Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. The children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. They shall appoint for themselves one head. They shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, your brother whose name was not mine, say to your brothers, you are my people. Say to your sisters, you have received mercy. This is God's response to human sin. This is God's response to our unfaithfulness. This is God's response as we prostitute ourselves to sinful behaviors and lifestyles and attitudes and actions as we abandon him. God's response is not judgment. God's response is mercy. You are my people. Once you were not a people, but now you are my people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God meets his people with mercy and not judgment, with adoption and not disownment. Only in Christ is this true. Only in Christ do we meet the mercy of So we are not punished for our disobedience because Jesus was already punished so that we don't have to be. He took the weight of wrath. He took the weight of judgment. He took the weight of sin. It's on him now. It's on the cross. When God looks at you, he doesn't look at you with anger, with rage, with judgment, with wrath. He looks at you with mercy because you are his people. You are the children of God the promise of Christ in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I want to invite you to come to the table of mercy. In a few minutes, we're going to have lunch. We're going to enjoy some Chick-fil-A. But before we have some real physical food, I want to invite you into some spiritual food. I want to invite you into the mercy Jesus doesn't only forgive you, he cleanses you. So you are spotless in his sight. So that unrighteousness in your life, that's a problem, right? God, God doesn't judge it and punish it because he punished Jesus, but that unrighteousness is still a problem. But God's response is the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. As we come to Jesus, he cleans us, he washes us, he sanctifies us. That's the churchy spiritual word that we like to use. you are in Christ, you are destined for mercy and not for wrath. This is the clearest expression of the gospel in this whole passage. You have gone from strangers and aliens, from sojourners and exiles, and you have become a people of God's own possession. You have a king. You are in a kingdom. The kingdom of God has come. You 
We've gone from wrath to mercy. So I want to invite you to receive the forgiveness of God this morning. What I'd like us to do is together to confess our sin. And there is a prayer that the church has prayed for thousands of years in order to make that confession happen. And I want to invite you to join me in together confessing our sin to God. Coming to Him knowing that He will not respond in wrath or judgment, but in mercy. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We'll put that prayer up on the screen. I'll invite you to read that with me. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son Jesus, have mercy on us and forgive us that we might delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. God is gracious to all who confess their sin and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, your sin is forgiven. Do you feel that weight lift? It's powerful. It's powerful. We're going to take a few moments to pray. There's some stuff that maybe you just feel like, I need to lay this down. I need to lay this shame at the feet of Jesus. I need to lay this guilt at the feet of Jesus. I want to be the person that God has called me to be. I don't feel very chosen. I don't, I don't feel very holy and different and distinct. I want to invite you to come, let God speak to you, do some work in your heart and in your life. Invite God to assure you of your purpose in this world, your vocation, to, to show you how you can live that out. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to invite you to come. We're not going to take too much time because I want to eat, but I want to honor God in this moment and spend some time in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that it challenges us, the way that it instructs us, the way that it convicts us. Lord, I pray that we would submit ourselves to the discipline of your word. Thank you for your mercy, that you come not in wrath, but in forgiveness. show us who we are? Would you show us what you have for us to leave? Would you show us 